Yes, please. I like the idea of the community being the next center, some community. What I've always seen, though, throughout my life is that every community or group or gathering quickly becomes or falls into the category of we, they. And how do we not slide off that smoke? So we have a longing to, enli- to um, legalize enlightenment. <laughs> And there's this kind of deep conviction that if we can get the structure right, you know, and we can get the, the, the governance right, we can get the form right, then we've got a, a monopoly on enlightenment. And we have to realize that that is never the place where it's going to come from. That there's never any security, and that we have got to be on the lookout for any sense of divisiveness or separation or narrow-mindedness that will creep in any time we think we've got to purchase on something that's good. That that's kind of comes with the package, you know. So one of the humbling realizations in this business is that ignorance is not stupid. And it will co-opt anything Anything for its own uses and purposes, even that which looks like it's the most wise and liberated and free and loving thing that it can get its hands on. So I think the only way to answer that is to make waking up the priority rather than the identity of the group. And if that ends up being the collective priority, then it's like you've got shit sniffers around, you know? You've got people who call bullshit when they see it. You have people who are willing to say, no, we're going down the wrong path. This is, this is about fear and identity. This is not about love and welcome and opening and letting go. But there is no way that you can make a form or a group or an institution or a practice that's going to protect you from that. Because it's not about that. It's about the other stuff, that's the motivation and the intention that's underneath it. Yes, please. Um, I grew up attending a, uh, a temple in Southern California as a tradition. And there are a lot of Japanese... Uh, Traditions intertwined, and uh, I was just wondering if you see that as a problem because I, I started to get the sense that people that weren't Japanese American or Japanese felt intimidated going to it, you know, like, through the circus. So it was, it was less about being a Buddhist um, and more about being Japanese. Very, I mean, I don't get that sense here. Well, I was just talking with a very, very dear friend, somebody that Hajisuna knows also very well. And in the past, I was thinking about, you know, what I was interested in doing was creating a, you know, a model for Theravadan Buddhism. And what I realized is, is that I need to change the All Points Bulletin and have it, rather than being so focused, what needs is healthy. What is needed is something which is actually healthy and supportive of awakening. And then see, when that is actually the interest, what emerges from that? Because, you know, we can, we can become very 
I mean, there's something about having a form which everyone feels comfortable with, which has some familiarity to it, which I can completely understand this, the lack of complexity when you have that. But we are at a time right now where, mm, I don't know, there's a compromise that comes when we have that as the priority, which is, is that then the people who are identified with that particular form come together, even if the motivation for coming together can be very different. So different people have different needs, and some people, their need is to affirm their cultural identity. And that need is different than the need to wake up or to support other people to wake up. And so I don't know that it's helpful to place judgment on anybody else's motivation, but I certainly know that for myself, what I'm interested in doing is is have it less be about an identity and a lot more about the quality of waking up and the quality of supporting anybody who is interested in waking up, independent of race, culture, sexual orientation, economic base, and what is needed in order to support that. That's where I feel really alive, and I'm happy to be involved in things like that. And I can see there's many different other things, and everything has some value in it, but it would be maybe not something that I would want to put a lot of my own energy in. Yes, please. Well, it's not uh, an image. Uh, an imaginary self, anyway. Uh, just select certain kinds of things that you like or you think you want to be or things that give you meaning or ways you want to be. Then you put them all together and you say, this is me. Uh, and this is who I am, but isn't that just an ego anyway, which doesn't have anything inside of it anyway. So, uh, you know, the establishment of of an identity as a path to enlightenment seems to be kind of contradictory in my mind. Isn't that anything you have to let go of? As opposed to grasping and building up and reinforcing institutions or two groups that I would completely concur. But the reality is, is, is that the longing to belong is so deep that, in fact, that ends up being what a lot of groups are about, even though on the paper it looks different. Yeah. That longing, I mean, again, that's that longing to be something, to grasping at something, and, you know, it's... The grasping, speaking the form of the truth that you talked about, I mean, yeah. isn't that sort of the whole problem anyway? It is the whole problem. But the challenge is, is looking at this stuff in the way that it manifests, in the way groups form themselves, and being able to speak to it in a way that is conducive of both the group, maintaining some cohesiveness, and still using the group as a platform for reflecting on the longing to belong without solidifying the identity around it. But you put your finger right on it. You know, that's exactly where the kind of nexus of the problem is, and any group is going to have to navigate that. You know. 
And so it depends on the wisdom and the compassion of the leaders, the elders, and the members as to how they handle that stuff, because it is absolutely going to be there. I can guarantee it. You know? Well, just, again, the Sangha, I suppose, one of its functions as a Sangha, it seems to me, would be precisely to help you to dissolve that. That's right. To give you enough ground so that you can touch the groundlessness of not locating yourself in the constructed identity of the group. Yeah. That's not beginner stuff. <laughs> it's essential stuff, but it's not beginner stuff. I, I think I understand. I yeah. Mean, certainly on my own yeah. uh, journey, I mean, the way you end up is very different. type of community matter? Because I know a lot of people have like a common goal, like especially with religions, like the whole goal is to find something kind of bigger and better, I guess. And I know, I guess with a lot of religions, there are a lot of parallels and everything, but there's also a lot of like divisiveness between each group of religions. So, like, does that really matter, since everybody kind of has a common goal and everything? Does what matter? Just the type of community that you belong to. Like, if everyone has the same goal, but they go about it a different way, is that, is that fine, I guess? Well, I don't, I don't think that there's a one-size-fit-all kind of solution to this. You know, I certainly think that there's going to be different groups and different expressions that are going to meet different people's needs. And within different groups, they're going to have different strengths and different weaknesses that are working with. And, you know, some groups are really strong in certain areas and have issues in other areas. And with other groups, it's going to look differently. Certainly groups, like with everything else, you can't get a perfect group, you know. You can't get a perfect form. Perfection doesn't exist that way. It exists in one's internal release of any added residue to what's happening and skillfulness in the way one's relating to what's happening. Yeah. So I, I, would, in, I would encourage people to bring the clarity of their aspiration into the group process itself. Not so much to be shopping for different groups, but to recognize the group process itself is where you can bring your practice. So whatever it is that is your deepest aspiration, to speak about that in the group with the other people in the group and to see that whatever groups you are in, you know, that they are moving in the direction that feel conducive and that you can add in your own wisdom and voice about, you know, what that looks like and what's important to you. I don't know that, so I think it changes then from, from the right one to a good way. Yeah. Rather than trying to figure out what the right one is, try to figure out, well, what are the ingredients needed for it to be a, a group process that is moving in a good way? Yes, please. Um, I, because you've traveled a lot, um, 
you can you speak a little bit to um, the ways that you can learn by staying in one sangha in one place versus traveling to different sanghas and learning from different sanghas? Do you believe that you can learn or grow as much in one place as if you go and reach out and meet a whole bunch of different, a different range of ways that sanghas function? So it's a, it's a good question, particularly in our contemporary society that really has a tremendous kind of um, supermarket spirituality mentality. You know, where anytime there's the slightest bit of discomfort, it's like, I'm out of here, I'm going to find someplace else better next next door, you know, or wherever. And I don't think that brings a good result, you know, to, to move and change circumstance in response to difficulty. Because difficulty is like, comes with the territory. It's going to be difficult, I can assure you that. It's just a question of when, it's not a question of if. And so when there's ingredients that bring commitment to stay with that, then there's the ability to develop depth and fortitude and patience and compassion and resource in response to those challenges. That if you're just looking at other circumstances, they will not be able to be developed. You'll develop other skills, but not those ones. And those are important ones. So, you know, I came from a situation where... I was introduced to Theravada Buddhist principles and never, and it was 20 years of meditation in that style before I was exploring other ones. And then in the monasteries that I was living in, you know, the nuns just had two places that we were, we could, we could be in, and they were an hour and a half apart from each other. And so the, you know, the water under the bridge, the friction, you know, you'd think you'd be able to spontaneously ignite with some of the kind of heat that we were having to contend with. And for whatever reason, those of us who managed to stay with it, there is something that emerged from that that was really, really important. And one of the things that was really important was is that the women's community became a community. And of monastic women in the West, I haven't seen any other example or hadn't seen any other example of a group of Western women becoming a real community like that. But the heat and the frustration and the exasperation and being out of our depth and beside ourselves for like many, many years was really high. (laughs) So it took something to keep us in that. And the result, I think, was very good. But most people would say, you know, I'm just out of here. This is like so not what I'm interested in, what I signed up for. It's like, you know. So it takes the vision to know that there is some value in staying with difficulty and adversity in order that something else more positive and beneficial is going to emerge. And... You know, the nature of a spiritual practice is, is that as this gentleman was talking about, the looking at the identity, there is nothing that is more uncomfortable for a person to do than to have one's sense of self be revealed and dismantled. Nothing is more uncomfortable and dislocating than that process. 
And yet there's nothing more liberating than actually going through that process. Okay? So, you know, sometimes you just don't do it unless you're, you're cornered because it's uncomfortable. And so then there needs to be genuinely the discernment between what is the difficulty which is abusive, corrosive, undermining the resources that you have, and what is the difficulty which is developing resource, which is still connected with your vision, which is still congruent with your aspiration, which is genuinely moving in the direction of awakening, because they are different. You know, if you put an engine, if you dismantle the cooling system of an engine and drive it around, you crack the engine block. It cracks, and it's not personal. (laughs) Well, the same happens with people in communities and in spiritual life. If the heat is too intense and they don't have the cooling mechanisms to deal with it, they crack. And sometimes it means that they completely lose all faith in practice because they have absolutely no resource to deal with the challenges that they're dealing with. So discernment is needed. It's not like we can come up with a formulaic answer to these questions. But these are the kind of parameters that are needed in order to discuss or to investigate. One more. Um, thank you so much for coming to see us again. It's so wonderful to hear you again. Uh, as I've been listening to you and so moved and inspired, I'm also translating um, because I'm a layperson. Mm. Uh, and so the way I understand um, my community, my communities, they're multiple. And in many of them, uh, the grounds for that sangha are sometimes hard to see. Uh, so uh, a community might be a work community, the people, I, the people I interact with on a daily basis, who may not share the same goals as I do as I have, and um, that in itself is a struggle. And I was, um, so I've been trying to translate, and I just wanted to offer that to you and say, can you help me? (laughs) Well, the irony is, is that the same is true if you're living in a monastic community. You know, because you can have people who are all monastic, so we've got the same hairdo, you know. (laughs) But my goodness, the diversity, you know, in terms of why people are there and what they think it's all about and, you know, what motivates them and where they come alive and where they collapse is enormous, you know. So I think, you know, the bottom line is is, is that as human beings, you know, we need to meet each other where we meet. And, you know... That can be really true, that we can, we can meet each other when there's incredible... It doesn't seem like there's much in common at all. But you can look in somebody's eyes and recognize that this is another living, breathing human being. They're standing on the ground, you know, two feet away from me. They feel the weight of, of the pressure around them. We can connect there. When we connect there, then we can see where else we can connect. And sometimes in the monastery as well, we have to go back to those very simple places where we connect because there can be such incredible diversity and divergence of opinions about how it's supposed to look and what we're doing and how we're supposed to be doing it. That we have to go back to that same place that you have to go to with a, like a stranger on the street. 
you know, just to remember that we're actually connecting there. That's where we connect. And it's in our connection, it's our empathetic resonance with another living, breathing human being where we can find where else do we connect. And where do we need to be careful around the places where we see things very differently. Now, careful is different than ignore or deny or smash or brutalize. But we still, we need to recognize that there are going to be places that we really see things differently. And we need to take care with how we handle that. But this is something which a layperson does not have a monopoly on. You know, this is universal. Thank you.